as I speak this, these living seeds of truth will go out in the hearts and minds and lives that you've made good fertile soil and prepared. Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would water those seeds of truth and cause them to take root and grow in every life, bringing forth a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains, or that lives will be transformed. I pray that you would anoint our eyes to see and ears to hear and give us good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives ready for your word. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to really just lock our being and captivate to give you our best ear and full attention. And Lord, we bind away any distractions. Y'all disagree with me because there's many that are going to be hearing this beyond this service. And Lord, we just apply the blood over those that are going to be listening. Let the blood of Jesus cover their lives. And we bind the enemy away. Any distractions, anything that would try to steal the word of the Lord or deceive, we bind that away now. And we bless this time, and I bless those that are listening. Have good, fertile soil, hearts and minds and lives, and be humble and teach more and receptive. Lord, we thank you for it. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the word God gave me is, is, a, is a word I believe will really transform some lives. If I can give everybody full attention. But go with me. Follow along in the word, okay? If you brought your Bible. I'm not going to necessarily turn to every single scripture, but it's here. You can look it up for yourself. Because if I did, it would take way too long. But last week I talked about the power of the Holy Spirit. This week I want to talk about the Word of God, but the, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that brings life to the Word of God. And I also want to deal with some issues that really concern me in Christianity. The first thing is, in a nutshell, the New Testament is written in Greek, okay, Koine Greek, and it's an interesting language. And I can see why the Lord put it in Greek because there's multiple words that describe certain things. There's multiple words for love. You know, in our language, there's only one word. So you have to describe it. Sometimes you're like, well, I love them like my sister or I love them like this, and you have to describe it. In Greek, there's one word for every type of love. And it's the same way with the word word, W-O-R-D. There's more than one Greek word for that. In John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the word. In the Greek, that's logos. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then in Romans 10.17, it says, Faith comes by hearing the word. And that is rhema. Two different Greek words. And this is really significant, and I'm laying a foundation because we're about to really get into some stuff. But there's a, di- a total difference between Logos and Rhema. Most people live on Logos and don't even have a clue what Rhema is. What Logos is is what God has said in the past, and it's in the Word. You know, if I was just to come in here, and just open up my Bible to any passage and start reading to you a little story, and let's just talk about the story, that would just be the Logos. Okay, It's what God has said past tense. But if I was to pray and hear from God and get a word for tonight, what God is speaking right now to you, that's Rhema. Two completely different things. Logos is kind of like the milk of the word. The rhema is kind of like the meat of the word. Logos will not make you grow spiritually too much. 
Okay, I mean, anytime you read the word, it's a good thing, okay? The rhema will put faith in you, will sharpen you, will teach you what you need to know now, and will transform your life because it's what God is speaking now. You see what I'm saying? And the reason why I'm sharing that is because many people in many churches are not operating in rhema. They're operating in logos, and they're still in the milk, and nobody's growing spiritually. One of the things I've heard from a lot of people, and I mean a lot of people over the years, is that when they've, when they've come around, that they've grown more spiritually in just a month or two months than they have in years or sometimes in their whole life. And you, you have to wonder why. I can tell you why, and I'll tell you why not, and it's not because of me. But it's because of the anointing, number one. And number two, it's because rhema is being preached. You know, when you, when you preach the word of the Lord for now, what is the Holy Spirit saying tonight to you? It'll change your life. But if I was just to come in here and just tell you what I thought out of my humanity or talked about something, then, you know, it's only going to go so far. And how many knows that you can't live as an adult, you just can't live on milk. You have all kinds of problems, okay? <laughs> we need a good steak every once in a while. And I believe tonight this word, I, I really believe it's a, it's a steak, okay? All right, so let's go ahead and start moving into it. But the current word for the Lord today, also, my sheep hear my voice. You know, I can share Rhema, and, and there's other preachers that do. And there's some people out there that still don't hear the voice of the Lord. It doesn't matter if you preach the word of God, rhema, it's anointed, it don't matter. They don't have eyes to see and they don't have ears to hear. And that's why Jesus would say that, and that's why it's in the Bible many times, those that have eyes to see. You know, everybody has eyes, but not everybody has spiritual eyes to see. And not everybody has spiritual ears to hear. Another thing, we have to learn to move with the Spirit. We know in Romans 8 it says, those that are led by the Spirit of my children. But Numbers 9.22, and I love this, the cloud that was there during the day and the fire by night over the tabernacle. The children of Israel encamped around about the tabernacle, and whenever that cloud or that pillar would lift up in the air, all of them would start packing their stuff, and they would follow the cloud. And wherever the cloud came down, they would camp around it. And one of the things we've got to learn is we've got to learn to move with the Lord. And this has everything to do with what I'm sharing here about Raymond and everything else. The children of Israel understood about eating spiritual bread because they'd gather manna every morning. But I wonder how many Christians are still practicing the basics of gathering fresh manna from heaven every morning. Getting into God's presence and getting into his word. That's the basics. ABCs of Christianity. And you learn as you spend time with the Lord, you learn how to get out of just logos and start getting into rhema. You learn how to hear from God for yourself. And the Lord to take you to something in his word and show you something for today. He'll help show you where you're at spiritually and where you're going and what you need to do now. It's all about moving with him. He's like a shepherd. I remember this story one time Benny Hinn told I really liked. 
He said he fell asleep on the airplane and had a vision. The Lord gave him in a dream where there was a bunch of people walking with Jesus. And Jesus went in a robe and sandals and was walking all these people with him. And every so often, Jesus would speed up his pace. And every time he sped up his pace, more people would fall behind. Until finally, there was only a few people with Jesus. There's a place in Jeremiah that says, how can you run with horsemen and keep up with them if you can't even keep up with people on foot? There's a time to grow up spiritually to where you can move with God and really move with him. So here we go. Number one, the Bible teaches us that the beginning of wisdom, and I gave you four scriptures there, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now I want to skip down to something, letter D, and I'm going to come back to the others. But in Isaiah 11, if you want to go there, verses 1 through 5. Now I'm giving you all some raiment tonight. I'm giving you some meat, okay? And I'm not going to slow down. But in Revelation, it talks about the seven spirits of God. And I'm going to tell you, God doesn't have seven Holy Spirits. So what is he talking about? Just like with Jesus, it described him as a lamb that had seven eyes. Jesus doesn't have seven eyes. The reason why is because seven is the number of perfection. And so the Holy Spirit, when he comes in his fullness, and he comes in all seven attributes, okay, he's coming as the spirit of Elijah. But with that, one of the attributes of the Holy Spirit is, and I'm going to read this to you. In describing the Holy Spirit, I was talking about Jesus first. It says, a shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse. From the roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, speaking of Jesus, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. One of the attributes of the Holy Spirit is the fear of the Lord. What many churches are doing is they're trying to do things without the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, there's so many things wrong with it that I can't even begin to tell you how much is wrong with that. But one of the things that's wrong, and I want to dwell on this, is an absence of the fear of the Lord. One of the most important things in a Christian's life is to have a healthy fear of God. If you don't, you're going to have all kinds of problems. And you can see it. Let me flip over to the natural and then help you understand. When I was growing up, you know, there, there was a healthy fear of my dad when we were kids, okay? <laughs> Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. If you had good parents, you know what I'm talking about. Because, I mean, we knew if we did something stupid, we were going to get a spanking when we got home. We just knew that, okay? And you know what that did? That helped us learn right from wrong and keep us, it helped keep us on the right path. But if there was no discipline and there was no healthy fear, we would have done whatever we wanted to do and not cared. And that's exactly where a lot of Christians are today. Well, so-called Christians, and I'm going to get into that as well. But go with me 
in Matthew 10, 28. And then I'll, I'll share a little bit more under this and we'll move on. But I mean, it when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict of sin. That's, that's part of his job description. That's what Jesus said he would do in John 14. He said when he comes, he will convict the world of sin. I believe personally that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to get to heaven and be very surprised. And I may be one of them. Because there's going to be people there that we would have never thought would have got there. And there's going to be people that are not there that we thought for sure would have been there. Because God knows the heart. And people know how to people know how to put on a good show. But Matthew ten verse twenty eight. Start with verse twenty six. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid. Everybody say, be afraid. Of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus taught us to have a good, healthy fear of God. And whenever you become a Christian, this is the beginning of wisdom. This is where it begins in your life, that there's a good, healthy fear of God. And many people come to Christ because they realize there's a realization, okay? Well, there has to be a realization. I'm actually on my way to hell, and I need a Savior. Amen? And so that's how people come to Jesus. And there's a healthy fear there of hell and an understanding that God is a righteous judge, and he's not going to put up with nonsense and hypocrisy, you know. But I love the scripture because, see, as, as we begin to mature in Christianity, things begin to change. And I'll show you. When somebody has first gave their life to Jesus, the fear of God is the healthiest thing that they can have. Is there's a good fear of God, they understand that they better do right and obey God's word. And so what happens is, is that they clean out their life. They go home and they, they throw away the garbage that they need to chunk away and they, they repent. Okay? And that's an extremely healthy part. And see, here's the thing. When you try to take that away, you're going to ruin that person. You understand that? They could still end up in hell. You will, you will ruin them if you try to stop that part of their Christian growth. There's a story about a man that went fishing and and he, there was a, a cocoon, and many you guys, some of you have heard me tell this story. There was a cocoon there, and he saw the butterfly trying to get out. But it was very difficult for the butterfly to get out, and he was fishing, and he got done fishing, and he realized the thing was still struggling to get out, and he felt sorry for it and thought, I'm going to help it. So he got out his pocket knife and just cut a slit there so that it opened up. And when the butterfly hit the ground, it was, it was just a, a fat worm with little bitty wings. Even though he tried to help the butterfly, he ruined its life. Do you understand that? He ruined it. He, did, he didn't mean to, but he did. That butterfly would never fly. It was going to go through life deformed like that. And here's the difference between the caterpillar life and the, and, and the butterfly life in Christianity. Romans 12 says that we're transformed by the renewing of our, of our minds, and that's metamorpho in the Greek. 
where we get the word metamorphosis. When somebody lives a life conformed to the world, it's just like the caterpillar that crawls on the ground. When things are up, the person's up. When things go down, the person's down. They're stuck conformed to the landscape. If the economy's up, they're up. If the economy's down, they're down. If things are going good in life, they're up. If things are going bad, they're down. But when you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, you begin to soar above like a butterfly. You begin to soar above the problems. Things that used to make you up and down don't phase you anymore. Because you're living based on kingdom principles that are in God's word, and you're no longer conformed to the world. You've conformed yourself to Christ. And no matter what goes on around you, there's a stability because you know the word and you know the promises of God and you have faith. But going back to the fear of the Lord, if you try to take the fear of the Lord out, then just like the man that tried to help the butterfly, you'll ruin their life because there will be no repentance of sin. They won't see a need to change and they'll have a false sense of security that they can live however they want and still go to heaven. Let me show you how it works. And so that's how it begins. That's the healthy beginning. Just like when you're a kid, you know, you have a healthy, healthy respect and fear for your parents because, you know, they're going to discipline you and teach you right from wrong. But as you get older, it changes. The relationship changes because you've changed. You've matured, and you no longer need that level of discipline anymore. You understand? It's the same thing in Christianity. That's why it says in 1 John 4, 8, that as your love is perfected, then it will cast off fear. Because as you begin to grow in Christ and you begin to have a relationship with him, here's what happens. Please get this revelation. It's no longer about the, the fear of going to hell. Now it's that you love the Lord so much that you don't want to hurt the relationship. And as your love is perfected and you actually grow up, then it begins to cast off the need for fear. Even though I do believe there will be an element of that that will always be there. Because the Apostle John was the closest to Jesus. But when Jesus appeared to him in Revelation, what did he do? He fell on his face. You see, there will always be a healthy fear there. But the more that your love is perfected, it's that now it's no longer, well, I better not do this or I'll go to hell. It's, it's, I love the Lord so much I don't want to hurt the relationship. Okay. So that's how these seeming paradoxes or whatever in Christianity, they, they work together. Okay. They balance each other. We need, it's not that God had a hard time writing the Bible. We just have a hard time sometimes understanding it. And that's where we need the Holy Spirit to shed light. And when the Spirit of the Lord comes, the fear of God comes, and let me tell you what will happen. People will start truly getting saved right and left. They'll start truly giving their lives to God. And people that thought they were saved but realized they're not, they'll repent. When the fear of the Lord comes. And even good Christians will get on their face like Isaiah and say, woe is me. So one of the, the attributes of the Holy Spirit is the fear of the Lord. And that's got to be there. 
You can't say to the Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, do whatever you want to do, but leave the fear thing. When the Holy Spirit comes, he comes as a, the way he is. Okay? And when he comes, it's like a package deal. You're going to get the, the power. You're going to get the fear of God. You understand? Now, he's a person, but when he comes, he's going to do whatever he wants to do. He's God. And one of the things I promise you he'll do is start cleaning house. Because the Bible clearly says that the judgment of God begins in the house of the Lord. You know, we want revival in this area. And this is kind of a part two to last week because... We won't revive on this area, but here's, here's the problem. God, God, the Holy Spirit, is going to have to clean house in a lot of churches before that's going to happen in those churches. Everybody hear me? You got so-and-so sleeping with so-and-so. You got hypocrite over here doing this. You got so-and-so doing this. And the Lord is not going to pour out his spirit in that garbage. What he'll do is, is he'll come in and clean house and then pour out his spirit. That's why John the Baptist preceded Jesus. He, what did John the Baptist do? How would you like to sit in one of his sermons? You think I'm rough sometimes. Man, he would have told you. <laughs> Let me tell you. He would have pointed his finger at you and told you. But the thing was, that was needed because John brought a message of repentance and the fear of God. The spirit of Elijah was on him. I promise you, when people got around him, the fear of God gripped them. And they were repentant in their heart. They said, I want to turn away from my sin. And out of their repentance, they would go down there and get water baptized. And what did it do? It prepared the way for Jesus to come. You know, people want revival. And I shared this last week. Jonathan Edwards preached that sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon. And let me tell you, that was the great awakening. The great awakening. Okay, that sparked in America. But it started in a church where people were literally white-knuckling the pews and thought they were going to fall into hell right then. They literally felt like they were dangling over hell by a thread. This is documented facts. And because of that, the people repented and got right with God, and then the Great Awakening came. It's got to begin in God's people. Very quickly, some of the terminology is part of the problem. I mean, those, sometimes we've got generational problems that go, you know, 20 years ago they preached this, the next generation heard it, the next generation heard it, and the whole thing's wrong. <laughs> That's a problem. It's called a stronghold, okay? So here, here we go. Some of the problem is terminology. We, we flippantly throw around the word saved, but in the Greek the word saved is, is the word sozo. And listen, this is important. The word saved means to be healed, delivered, protected, preserved, made whole, to do well. And what people are saying is, is they're saying the person's been born again. Is this is part of the problem because once you're born again and you're truly converted, the Spirit of God comes to live in you and starts cleaning up your life. And how many knows that it's going to be evident? You know, you're not going to have to tell people, I promise you. I know it don't look like it, but I promise you I'm a Christian. If you're a real Christian, people are going to know it. And they're going to say, there's something different about you. And they might even say, there's something weird about you. Why don't you get mad? Why don't you cuss? You know, why don't you do this? But the thing is, it's obvious when somebody's truly born again. But what we have, and it's unfortunate, is we have a lot of, of counterfeit conversion. 
where people were told, okay, just come say this old prayer. No matter what you do the rest of your life, you'll go to heaven, I'm telling you. That's all you got to do right there is say the prayer. Well, who is not going to buy into that? I mean, think about it. Someone's, you know, this guy, Joe, over here, he's got a lot of money. You know, he's living the life that he thinks makes him happy. And then somebody tells him, hey, on top of all that, if you say this little prayer right now, you got your little card, you're going to get into heaven. Think about it. Where in the world do you see that anywhere in the Bible or even something remotely like it? You didn't even see Jesus do something ridiculous like that. He would tell people, look, I'll tell you what, you go sell everything you have and follow me. I mean, he preached the truth. He preached it straight. And what you have is a lot of people thinking that they're Christians that have never truly been converted. There's no fear of God that's convicting them of their sin. And because of this, we have some some weird mentalities in, in some churches. When you throw around the word saved, the word saved shouldn't be even be used unless it's first connected with somebody that has truly been born again and converted. Because once you come into Christianity and you accept what Jesus did for you on the cross, the Holy Spirit, he comes to live inside of you and he changes you. God's DNA is in you. You will never be the same. And I believe with all my heart, if somebody is truly, truly converted, their whole life's going to be different. And so here they are now born again, transformed. And now they're in covenant with God, and they begin their life of sozo, where whenever it's needed now, they have a covenant with God that when they need healing, healing is available. When they need deliverance from something, it's available. Whenever they need to be protected or to do well. And that's their life that they're living out as a life of sozo. It began at the born-again experience. Is this making sense? But people throw around the word saved, and in our English language, when you say somebody's saved, it seems like a finality to you. Like a fireman goes in and saves somebody out of a fire. But the word saved in the Bible is a, is a life of covenant with God. Do you see the difference? See, some of the terminology, because you, you translate it from Greek to English, some people have not really studied it out, and therefore they're teaching some stuff a little off, and I know they don't mean to. But in their, in their sincerity, they're cutting the cocoon, and they're causing a lot of people's lives to be ruined. And I know they don't mean to, but you, it's not our job to be telling people that they're saved. Hello? I mean, as the book of Romans 8 says, the Holy Spirit will bear witness with their spirit that they're children of God. You can come to me all day long and tell me I'm not a Christian. I don't care what you think. I mean, I, I say this in a nice way, but I know on the inside that I'm a child of God. Somebody telling me I am or telling me I'm not doesn't matter. Is this helping? It's not our job to be telling somebody that. It's our job to be telling people Jesus died for you. You better turn away from your sin and follow him. You better read his word and you better obey it and follow him to the death. That's our job. So first we're born again and we begin to move into a life of sozo. Let me say this in a nutshell. Mark 4, 6, the parable of the seed and the sower. 
When we go out and sow seed, and I want some of you guys to hear this that do street evangelism, and also I really want you guys that work with the young people to hear this too. Many times we have really got to be good about follow-up, okay, because there's a lot of times people allow things to fall through the cracks. When you go out witnessing, you're sowing seed, and the Bible says that it falls on different kinds of soil. Sometimes it's going to fall on good soil, and it's going to grow and produce 30, 60, 100-fold harvest, okay? Other times, it's going to fall on soil that is going to begin to grow, but the cares of the world try to come choke it out. How many are familiar with this parable? You know, it's really our job to be helping the cares of the world to get cut off. See, we should be like a gardener. Whenever we see the cares of the world coming in, we should be in relationship with these people that we can help cut that off and help them. Some seed, as you go, is going to be thrown off to the side, and the birds, which represent demons, are going to come steal it. But here's the part that concerns me the most. There's some seed that fall in stony places, and it, and it grows up quick. But it says when the sun comes out, it scorches it, and it dies, because it doesn't have any roots. It is our job as Christians to not just witness to people alone, but disciple them. And that's very important to the Lord. Jesus didn't say go and win converts all over the world. And I'll get back to this. He said go and make disciples. We've got to have really good follow-up, guys. Listen to me. In today's technology with cell phones and Facebook and MySpace and, and, and emails, and there's no excuse. Back in the day when all you had was a rotary phone, you know, and so I, I can understand. But now we've got so much stuff, you know, we should be able to easily keep up with people. But we need to form, a, as best we can, we need to form a relationship and begin to disciple people because they've got to get roots. Okay? They need a home church they can go to, and they need to be discipled. And let me say this quickly about discipleship. Did, how did Jesus disciple? Did he have a blackboard and chalk? Here's what Jesus did. Jesus took people out on the streets and says, watch me. And then he said, now you go and do what I did. There's a big difference between what modern-day Bible schools, many of them, many of them, not all of them are doing, and the true discipleship Jesus did. Okay, it wasn't a classroom setting alone. All right. So getting true converts, I really feel in my heart some of you guys feel like a grief as you're hearing this because you're concerned about some people. Okay, let's begin to pray for them. The greatest deception, you know, I, I appreciate the ministry of those that are going out into other countries, into territories that's never heard the gospel. And I appreciate that ministry. It's powerful. And they face a lot of warfare. But I'm going to tell you, it is very challenging dealing with a bunch of religious people in this area that we live that everybody thinks they're on the way to heaven. And everybody thinks that just because they go to church, they're going to heaven. And everybody thinks just because they said a little prayer, they're going to heaven. Everybody thinks just because they own a good Bible, they're going to heaven. It's challenging to help people realize, no, you've got to truly be born again and be converted and let God do a work in your life. And the evidence of that is going to be a holy life because you don't want to sin anymore. You want to live to please him. <clears throat> so very quickly, what are the motives of those coming to Christ? John 6, 66. You know, do you remember the crowd that followed Jesus across the lake? 
And they were all excited to see Jesus. See, some people, I'm going to tell you, please get this. Some people think Jesus is a certain way. Man, he's a lot different than what some people think. When all these people, just picture this, they come to him, and they're all excited that they found him. And Jesus rebukes them and says, the only reason why you're here is because I fed you. That's it. You're here because I gave you bread and the fish, and I fed you. That's why you're here. And then he said something that he knew that they wouldn't understand. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. And all of them deserted him except his 12. A big crowd. So really think about it. Is Jesus actually as seeker-friendly as some people want to paint him out to be? And so he looks to the 12 and says, are you going to leave too? And I believe it was Peter who said, Lord, where, where will we go? We've left everything to follow you. And I guarantee you if they would have said, yep, and got up and walked off, Jesus would have went and found 12 others. He wasn't going to conform to what they wanted him to be. He wasn't going to water it down. Are you all getting this? So what are the true motives of Christianity? What's the true motive of somebody coming to Christ? Is there a sincerity in their heart? It concerns me because some people, let me tell you the whole flaw, and you guys have seen this, I promise you. As I was growing up in Christianity and was around different people, there's some people that were like, well, you know, I can do this, this, and this, and this, and still go to heaven. And it's like the whole mentality was, what can I, what can I get away with and still make it? I can assure you they're probably not going to be there. I love them. But let me tell you why. Because a true Christian is always saying, Jesus, cut this out of me. Change me. Help me to be more like you. Not, hey, what can I do over here to, you know, and get away with it and still be in heaven one day? You see what I'm saying? There was a great warning in Matthew 7 that talked about many, not a few, many will say to the Lord on that day, Lord, Lord, they called him Lord. We prophesied in your name, cast out demons, healed the sick. Think about that. You can't do those things unless you're a Christian. You can't cast out demons. Demons are not going to leave unless you use the name of, the G- of Jesus and you've got something in your life. Because they're not afraid of sinners. Okay. And these people came to him and said, Lord, Lord. They called him Lord. They said, we did all these things. And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. And, a, and he said, you're a worker of lawlessness. So there was two problems right there. They never knew the Lord. They never had a real relationship like they should have. And they were living in sin. They were living in lawlessness. All right. Making disciples. Already touched on that. We're to preach the gospel of the kingdom, not just the gospel of salvation. Everybody hear that? The gospel of the kingdom of God is not just about being born again, but it's about Jesus paid for your healing at the cross. He paid for your deliverance at the cross. He wants you to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. There's more to the kingdom. There's a gospel of the kingdom that we're to preach. All right, I'm going to close this thing down with talking about the falling away. And this concerns me as well. Go with me to 1 Timothy 4.1. 
I'm going to show you some of these prophecies. How many knows we're living in the end times? These are difficult times. And we're not going to do anybody any favors. Everybody hear me. We're not going to do anybody any favors by watering things down and just telling people what they want to hear. You're not doing anybody any favors doing that. 1 Timothy 4.1 The Holy Spirit clearly says that in the latter times some will abandon the faith. We're in the latter times. There are people that are abandoning the faith. They once walked with God and now they don't. They don't want to. They're a homosexual. They're a witch. They don't want Jesus anymore. They want their sin. The Spirit clearly says in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. I believe with all my heart that there's many doctrines of demons, but one of them is any time there's ever a doctrine that makes somebody feel like that they can live in sin and play games with God and still be in heaven one day, that is from the pit of hell. That is from a demon. That's where it originated. So whatever label you want to put on that, however you want to you know, dress it up, make it sound nice, it's a doctrine of a demon. Jesus would never preach that. If you can go to heaven with unrepentant sin in your life, why did Jesus come and die on the cross in the first place? I mean, that's just common sense. Some people overanalyze things to the point that they get ridiculous. And they're pulling scriptures out everywhere and bending everything and manipulating everything into a certain way. And, that, that, you know, and it's like, hello, if you can go to, to heaven with sin in your life and it's not a big deal with God, why did Jesus die? What was the point? Second Thessalonians two one. I'm closing this down. Y'all stay with me. I want you to get this last part. This is really what I was getting to right here. Is we're in the latter times. I'm gonna tell you, just like the spirit of Elijah came on John the Baptist to prepare the way of the first coming of the Lord, the spirit of Elijah is coming on us to help prepare the way of the second coming of the Lord. But you can't have the spirit of Elijah unless you're going to preach the word of the Lord. If you're going to preach a hypocritical, watered-down message, God will not be with you in that. He won't. I'm going to tell you right now. The Bible says he confirms his word. When you start watering down the gospel, it's no longer a gospel. When you start watering down the word, it's no longer a word. And God's not going to anoint that and confirm it with signs that follow. All right, Second Thessalonians 2. Concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and us being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy reported letters supposedly to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and exalt himself above everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is the Antichrist. But look at this part. Don't let anyone deceive you. That day will not come until the rebellion occurs, number one. And number two, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Jesus will not come until the rebellion occurs. 
and until the Antichrist is revealed. That's what it says right there. The rebellion is a Greek word, apostasia. Please get this. You need to get this. An apostate, apostasia, what an apostate is, is somebody that at one time walked with God. They walked with Jesus. And now they've turned their back on him and they're walking the other direction. That is what an apostate is. That's by definition. That's what it is. And this is exactly the Greek is the word apostasia. Get a strongs. That's where we get the word apostate. So in other words, there's going to be a great falling away or there's going to be many people that one time walked with the Lord that are now turning their backs on him. How many knows the wheat are going to be separated from the tares? Those that are, have a false conversion, it's going to be very evident who's had a real conversion and who's had a false. Because as the pressure of the end times comes down, it's going to force that. There's going to be a great divide. It's going to force it. Because people that are fake are not going to be able to handle the persecution and everything else. They're not going to be able to handle the satanic attack. But the Bible clearly predicts that, that there's going to be a great apostasia, a great rebellion, a great falling away. And it's happening around us. Think about it. Think about how many people that you've heard of that at one time walked with the Lord and were Christians that are now apostates. I can think of some Christian singers, musicians that are now homosexuals. That used to be Christian singer artists and loved the Lord. Now are practicing homosexuals living in it. They're apostates. They know it's wrong. But they've chosen that over Jesus. A dog can return to its vomit. Second Peter 2. I want you to follow along because I want you to see this for yourself. Because I'll tell you why. Because there's going to be some people that are going to try to buck this. And I don't know why for the life of me. How many knows I want to be a voice that actually sees people getting into heaven for real? That's not going to happen if I water it down. Or tell people what they want to hear. I'm going to read this whole thing. I want you all to follow me. This is amazing. Second Peter 2. But there were false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. How many knows there's some false teachers out there? And they'll secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Think about how much that's happening right now. People are following their shameful ways, and it's bringing um, reproach on the gospel, on the kingdom of God. And this is for our time right here. You'll see it as we go. In their greed, these teachers exploit you with stories they've made up. Do you really think that I would get up here and preach something like this if I gave a rip about your money or anything else? I had to die to that a long time ago. You cannot be a true preacher if you care about what other people think. You better get that in you. Because eventually it can destroy your soul. 
because you'll end up just living to please people. People come and go. Okay? Somebody will be nice to you one minute and knife you in the back the next. You can't live for people. Their condemnation has been hanging over them, and their destruction has been sleeping, or has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Do you want that to be your legacy? I love that. That's attached with Noah's name. He was a preacher of righteousness. And seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials. Amen. And to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow their corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. How many people are living according to their sinful nature and despise authority? They disrespect authority. They don't have any respect for their parents, teachers, or anybody else. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. How many people blaspheme in matters they don't understand? They don't understand the things of the Spirit and the things of God. So what do they do? They hurl insults. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. Like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm that they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in pleasure while they feast with you. You know, the feasting with you reference has to do with taking the Lord's Supper. So there's people were there taking the Lord's Supper and still living like this. They are experts in, oh, let me skip, I'm sorry. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off. To follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Balaam preached for money. That's the only reason he preached. These men are springs without water and mist driven by the storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful man. They entice people who are escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Now listen to verse 20. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverb is true, a dog returns to his vomit, and a sow that has been washed goes back to wallowing in the mud. 
there's going to be people that are dogs that return back to their vomit in these end times. Abandoning the faith. God never takes away our free will. God's given us a free will. He'll never take it away. In the Garden of Eden, they had a free will. You have a free will to accept Christ. This is some of the last stuff I want to point out. But look at the message of of the abused grace doctrine. Look at the fruit that it bears. I want you to look at fruit for a minute. When people are teaching and preaching in a way that condones sin, it makes people feel comfortable in sin, what is the fruit of that? The fruit is that people are just living in sin and have no problem with it. That's the fruit. So how many people do you know that profess Christianity, but the fruit of their life is very contrary to that? And I can almost guarantee you that the church they go to and the preacher they sin under would never preach something like this. And so because of that, they feel comfortable where they're at. There's no fear of God coming down, convicting them. And when you preach the truth like this, the Holy Spirit, he comes in and he begins to work on people. He brings the fear of God. He brings conviction. Why would anybody preach like this unless they love people and care about their souls? If I only loved myself and cared about myself only, I would just tell people what I want them to hear so everybody would like me. Right? It takes love to go out street witnessing, knowing that you may go through some rejection or somebody being mean to you, but you love them enough to go out there and tell them the truth anyway. Why else would you do that? If you just loved yourself, you would never do that. It's just making sense. Last thing, enduring till the end, Matthew twenty four thirteen. Also Hebrews ten thirty eight. The righteous will live by faith. Let me tell you, Jesus said in Matthew twenty four, they came to him and said, What about the end times? And Jesus said, Make sure that no one deceive you. That was the first thing he said. There's going to be a lot of deception in the end times. But as he went on he said there was going to be rumors of wars, plagues, famines, you know, Christians are going to be martyred, on and on. But then he said, Those that endure till the end will be saved. What's the Greek word for saved again? Sozo? So it begins with your born-again experience, and then you go through a life of sozo, and it's completed whenever you die in your faith and you see him face-to-face. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I, w- I, would, I would hate to think that there's going to be people that are going to die thinking that they're on the way to heaven. And when they see him, they're going to see an angry countenance. And they're going to hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you. You were a worker of lawlessness. Can you imagine that being you? I can't imagine. I don't want to see Jesus with an angry countenance because I was a hypocrite my whole life. But he that endures to the end. And this right here is it. This should strengthen your faith because the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit that lives in you, bears witness that you're a child of God. And there's scriptures after scripture um, where Paul told the Corinthian church, you better examine yourself and make sure you're in the faith. And to the Philippian church, he told them, you better work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he preached this way, okay? But when you know that you're born again and you know the Spirit of God is within you, 
You welcome things like this because you want to be right with God. You want to please the Lord. You want to hear the whole counsel of God. You know, if you live your life just eating desserts all the time, you're going to have a lot of health problems. You need the meat. You need the whole word of God preached. There's sermons that are like desserts that are fun to preach and fun to hear, you know. But this is one of those that will actually strengthen you and will keep you. But Acts, or Hebrews 10.38, the righteous will live by faith. Okay. I have more faith in God to keep me than the devil to deceive me. Remember the scripture where it says that it would be so bad in the end times, Jesus said, that even the very elect could be deceived if that were possible. Why is it not possible? Because he's going to keep us. He knows who are his. And you better believe he's, he's marked you and he will keep you. My job is just to preach people to, that, to the point to where they want to make sure that they're in the faith and that they're the real deal. That's my job. I want people to know when you leave out of here, you know that you've heard the word of God and you've examined yourself and you can say with assurance, I know I'm the real deal. I live by faith, not in ungodly fear, which produces suspicion, being critical, fault-finding, and in ungodly control. You know why a lot of people don't like the move of the Spirit of God? Because you can't control Him. So you've either got to love Him or, or resist Him. I mean, when He comes, He's God. He's going to do whatever He wants to do, and He does not care what you think about it. And that's why a lot of people, it's a fear. Think about it. Some of you that whenever you got became a Christian or maybe you went into the deeper things of God, how many people when they talked to you sounded so afraid? They're afraid. What are you gotten into? You're weird. You know, what's up with this Jesus stuff? You've never been like that. Are you in a cult? See, that's the ungodly fear. God has not called us to live by that kind of fear. There's a difference between the fear of the Lord by the Holy Spirit and the fear where Paul said, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. That's a demonic fear, a torment. That ungodly fear will drive you away from God. The godly fear that's from the Holy Spirit will drive you toward God. And the whole reason why a lot of people have a problem with things is because they're, they're fearful. You know, why would we be afraid? I mean, if I know that I have the Holy Spirit in me and with me, and I know the Word, why would I ever be afraid about going somewhere and being around Christians or God moving or whatever? Because I know the Holy Spirit, if something was wrong, the Holy Spirit would tell me. I don't got to go around all the time all freaked out and fearful, you know. And, I mean, I know God, God's with me. God's with me. Amen. I mean, something weird starts happening and pews start floating and people start chanting or something. I mean, I'm going to know that's the devil, you know, and it's out the back door, you know. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> people sitting in a yoga position, you know, and chanting or something. Come on, man. The last thing I want to say, and I want to pray, if, if anybody wants to pray about this, but Matthew 6:22. the eye can allow. Remember, Jesus said the eye is the lamp of the body. Let me read it. Matthew 6:22. Some of you, because you've allowed things in your eyes, it may have polluted 
want to read it there. Matthew 6, 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Pastor Jeff touched on this at the um, outcry. But what you allow into your eyes can defile your whole being. Okay? And some people have allowed some things in their eyes that have really polluted them. And there may still be a bondage connected to that. And it could even be health problems that are connected to that. Okay? But if there's something there, you feel like there's things that you've allowed in your eyes over the years and it's, and it's produced something in you and you want prayer about that, let's pray. But I want you to understand that you've got to do whatever it takes to get it out. And remember this, you know, Jesus said that if your eye offends you, gouge it out, it would be better to go to heaven with one eye than hell with two. Now, let me, let me finish this. That's what he said. But if you gouge out one eye, you still got one you can see with, okay? So I don't think he literally necessarily... But here's, here's how you can gouge out an eye. If, if, if Internet pornography is a problem, get rid of the Internet. You've just gouged it out. Because you can gouge out one eye and still look at the porn. If something, if something is a problem in your life, get it out of your life. Do whatever it takes to get it out of your life. It's not worth going to hell over. I believe that's what Jesus meant. So let's repent and get this stuff out. Closing this thing now, live a life of prayer, renew your mind. Renewing your mind, if you practice this, will transform your life. If things come into your head that's not supposed to be there, throw it out and think on something else. Think on something good. If you'll practice that as a lifestyle, you'll be totally different. Die to your flesh every day. And the last question I want to ask, and then we can pray, is what do you think of yourself? Do you have a low opinion of yourself or a high opinion of yourself? Are you somebody that's been through a lot of abuse in your life and therefore you have a real low self-esteem? You never had your parents' approval or something like that? Now, some people go through life really crippled emotionally. And God's called them to do great things, but the way they see themselves is doing small things. God's called them to, to be up on this level, but they see themselves way down here. So that's where they stay. Because it's not about what you can achieve anyway. If you read the Bible, God always picked the people that you would have never thought. He always did that. So if he picked you, then he did it deliberately because in your own self you're thinking, why would he pick me? I would be the last person, and truthfully, probably so. Why? So that, you, so that he gets all the glory. Remember Gideon? Gideon, great man of valor. And what does he do? He looks behind him talking to me, you know, and that's the way he felt about it. And he was sincerely cowardly. But God ended up using him with just 300 men to defeat that massive army of hundreds of thousands. And it was such a magnificent victory that you're still hearing about it today. So God will pick sometimes the seeming weak, the ones that the world considers foolish to do the greatest exploits. So if you feel like well, God could never use me. You're probably the very person that he really will use, scripturally. But if you're somebody that thinks, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, yeah if God's going to use somebody, he's going to use me, you'll probably be the last person. That's just the way God operates. 
Some people deal with hating themselves. They deal with a low self-esteem. You know, loving yourself in a healthy way, I'm not talking about these vain people that stand in the mirror, you know, all flexing and stuff. I'm not talking about that. Okay, but I'm talking about <laughs> if somebody's here like that, we'll pray in a minute for, okay, humility. All right, but but I'm talking about... <laughs> I'm talking about a healthy, a healthy love for yourself rather than a hatred of yourself. Because deep down, some people hate themselves. They wish that they were somebody else. They could, they could have a list of things they wish they could change about themselves. They don't like the way they look. They don't like the way they talk. They have a very low self-esteem. And that can really hinder you in life, okay? God wants you to have a healthy love for yourself and understand God made you the way he made you. Okay, he loves you like you are. He made you that way deliberately. Okay. And he wants to use you in a powerful way like you are with your personality. So don't let the devil keep you beat down. You know, years ago when, I, when God first started using me, I, I had a hard time with a lot of things. I would have never been able to get up and preach and, and, and do music in front of people, a lot of things because there was such a low self-esteem. But God has to heal that. Some of the greatest preachers have come through that. Did you know Benny Hinn was, was one of the shyest kids? When, did you know that? When, when people would come over his parents' house, he would run and hide under his bed. He was one of the shyest kids. And now he's preaching to everybody in the world. Okay? You know, I mean, who has not heard of Benny Hinn? You know, he's all over the world. God took the lowest, so to speak, to raise him up the highest. And God will do that with many of you. I believe that. Use you to do great things in the world. Let's pray. If you want prayer, I'll be praying with you here in a moment. But Lord, I just pray that you would release your presence, your power, and transform lives.